It's a joy to be with you here this morning at Cornerstone. I am good friends with your pastor, Paul Carter, and I so appreciate him. And good morning to Coldwater. So thrilled that you are here joining with us this morning as well. And just one other word. A month ago, I had the privilege of being in Newfoundland and seeing, meeting with Steve Bray, he's a good friend, and seeing my one mission that was on the announcements this morning. And I am so thankful here at Cornerstone that you support Mile One Mission. There's such a lack of gospel-centeredness on that island. And God is using Steve Bray as they're building that new ministry center. As God has provided him with that church, as I met with a number of their interns, I believe God is going to use that ministry to impact the island powerfully. If you have your Bibles with me, turn with me to John 11. John 11, beginning at verse 1. I'll turn to the Word in a minute. Many of us find death hard. We journey with people through death and we find death difficult. And there's a variety of deaths we journey with people through. Don Lease was a friend of mine. He and I traveled with our two sons and others to Ottawa and back. I knew him at Fair Havens. And many of you know Don and Julie. And he, one morning, you know, didn't wake up. 52 years of age, firefighter, farmer, in good health. His son, Gabe, heard the alarm going off and off and off and thought, that's odd. Dad always gets up. Went into the room to find his dad. Didn't get up because his dad had died in the middle of the night. 52 years of age. I think Gabe was 17 at the time. No one else was home. He's the youngest of the three children. Mom was up at NBC teaching at a women's retreat. And there his dad is, passed away. I think of Jason. Jason was a young man in our community, 22 years of age. He was shot to death. He was shot to death in a drug deal gone wrong. It was the first funeral I took. I was 23 years old, and I took the funeral of a young man who'd been shot to death in a drug deal gone wrong. And his son was found in his blood, his son, two and a half years of age, pleading with his dad to get up when the police got there, but he couldn't get up because he'd been shot to death. I think of Klose. He's one of the young Karen men. You know, they grew up their entire lives in the jungle, until they came to Canada and refugee camps. Um, They didn't know electricity or sanitation or running water. Come to Canada, everything's different. He struggled with all kinds of mental health but didn't tell anyone. And one day when he was playing a game of hide-and-seek with his friends, he hung himself and they found him dead. I mean, death is awful, right? But I think of my grandfather who died at 94 years of age, 2016. Loved the Lord deeply was a gracious and kind and godly man. In that moment, we celebrated what God had done in his life, celebrated the goodness of our God. But we all encounter death, all of us. Death of friends, death of family, death of loved ones. The wages of sin is death. It's death. It's death. Jesus himself encountered death. Death of his friend Lazarus. John 11, verse 1. Now a man, I'm reading from the NIV. You're probably in the ESV. I didn't think of that until this morning. It was too late. Now a man named Lazarus was sick. He was from Bethany, the village of Mary and her sister Martha. This Mary, whose brother Lazarus now lay sick, was the same one who poured perfume on the Lord and wiped his feet with her hair. So the sisters sent word to the Lord, Lord, the one you love is sick. When he heard this, Jesus said, this sickness will not end in death. No, it is for the glory or for God's glory so that God's Son may be glorified through it. 
Now, Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. I'm going to pause there for a moment. I'm going to stutter step through the text. This is the first time that John mentions Mary and Martha and Lazarus. First time that they show up in the Synoptic Gospels. They show up earlier uh, in, in the other Gospels, but in John's Gospel, this is the first time that we have them showing up. They live in Bethany. That's just a few kilometers outside of Jerusalem. It's not far outside of Jerusalem. Jesus is saying right here that this sickness, verse 4, will not end in death. He said, though he's sick, he will not die. What he's saying is he knows Lazarus is actually going to pass away. He's saying that it will not remain fatal. That there will be a greater purpose that God will reveal so that everyone can see the glory of God. You may remember Luke 10 with Mary and Martha where Mary is at the feet of Jesus. She's there listening to him. Martha is busy preparing Right? So we have many encounters with Mary and Martha and Lazarus through the Gospels. Verse 6. When he heard, that's Jesus, that Lazarus was sick, he stayed where he was two more days. And then he said to his disciples, let's go back to Judea. Not even to Bethany yet. But Rabbi, they said, a short while ago, the Jews there tried to stone you, and yet you're going back there. Jesus answered, Are there not 12 hours of daylight? Anyone who walks in the daytime will not stumble, for they will see by the world's light. It is when a person walks at night that they stumble, for they have no light. So he hears Lazarus is sick. He stays two days. I'm sure that confounds the disciples, because this is a good friend. I mean, they have watched him heal multitudes of people. They have watched Jesus cast out numerous demons. And now in this moment, he hears his friend is sick and he just stays. And no one gets it. Jesus, why are you staying? Jesus, why aren't you going? Jesus, we know you could do something. And then instead of heading to Bethany, he heads first to Judea. And they know there that in Judea, it was John 10 when he was in Judea, that the leaders tried to stone him. John 10, 31, just a chapter before where those that were there wanted to stone him because you, a mere man, are claiming to be God. Now note in verse 9, Jesus talks about there are 12 hours of daylight. Anyone who walks in the daytime won't stumble because you can see. You can see where you're going. You know that. You're out during the day. You can see what's ahead of you. You can see where you're going if you're looking. But you go out at night when there's no street lights. You go out at night when it's just dark. You're out somewhere camping and you've forgotten your flashlight. And it's easy to trip over something. It's easy to walk along. There's a tree branch or something in the way, and you just trip over something. If you are in your own backyard and you have kids, you trip over your children's toys, wondering why they didn't put them away, but that's a whole other category to talk about. (laughs) I want you to note that all three themes in John are found right here in John 11. John 11 is the culmination of all that John the gospel writer, is trying to tell us as he's moving toward the cross and the resurrection. The three themes in John are light and darkness, belief, and I am. All of the I am's are found in the gospel of John. John has a whole theme of belief, to believe in Jesus. And the light-darkness theme is all through the gospel of John. Note John 1, verse 6. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. That's John the Baptist, not John the Gospel writer. He came as a witness to testify concerning that light 
so that through him all might believe. He himself was not the light. He came only as a witness to the light. The true light that gives light to everyone was coming into the world. Jesus says it himself, John 8. When Jesus spoke to the people, he said, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will never walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. Just a pause for a moment. When you're reading through the Gospels, you want to look through for repetition in any book of the Bible. What is this author trying to convey? Where are things repeated? Where are themes showing up? So in John, you see all through the Gospel the light and dark theme. You see the theme of belief. We'll get to that in a minute. You see the I am's. Even in the passage I just read, Jesus says what? I am the light of the world. I am the light. And all of the I am's are found in John. So if I'm meeting with someone, and when I was at Steve Bray's church in, in Newfoundland, a young man came to faith in Christ while I was preaching on the Saturday night. I was there for a weekend. And, um, and he, I was asking him about his life and, you know, who he was as God was saving him. And, you know, he was kind of a more practical guy, right? Like, not overly philosophical, you know, 16 turning 17, great kid, but doesn't love academics. And so I said, Start with the Gospel of Mark. Mark's fast-paced. Mark's quick. Mark's the shortest gospel. Now, had he come to me and said, I'm a real thinker. Like, I love to digest books. I love to think philosophically. I'd be start with John. John has the most philosophy in it. All the I am's are found in John. So you understand the theme of a book. You understand some of the messaging of a book. And then you know how to direct someone to which book of the Bible they should be reading which book of the Bible they should be starting out with, which book of the Bible they should digest first. Well, verse 11 of John 11. After he said this, he went on to tell them, our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep. I'm going there to wake him up. The disciples replied, Lord, if he sleeps, he's going to get better. Jesus had been speaking of his death. His disciples thought he meant natural sleep. So he told them plainly, Lazarus is dead. And for your sake, I'm glad I was not there so that you may believe. You see that? I hope from now on, whenever you read the Gospel of John, you're looking for these words. But let us go to him. Even Thomas, also known as Didymus, said to the rest of the disciples, let us go and we will die with him. Now, some people think this is a statement of disbelief. It's not. This is a statement of courage. Thomas isn't saying, I don't want to go there. Thomas isn't saying, I don't want to be there. Thomas is saying, you know what? The Jews are after you. You want to go to Bethany. Lazarus has died. If that's our, what's going to happen to us now, if that's our destiny right now in this moment, under God, we'll go there and die as well. But note in this, Jesus has said he's fallen asleep. Right? He's actually died. The disciples think, well, let him get some rest. Jesus like, actually, he's dead. He doesn't need rest. He's actually passed away. And what does he say? I am glad that I was not there for your sake so that you may believe. It's interesting. When you read the healing of Jairus' daughter and other miraculous, raising her to life again and other miraculous healings like that, what happens? Jesus says, don't tell anyone. My time has not yet come. That doesn't happen in this encounter. As Jesus is about to encounter Lazarus and raise him to life again, he wants everyone to know. 
He wants there to be no mistake who he is. This is the account where light and darkness merge. This is the account where people need to believe. This is the account where the I am's are found in their culmination in him. You see, in those days, sometimes people were dead-ish. They weren't really dead. Now, you might find that hard to believe, but they didn't have the same medical technology that we do. And if you Google today, someone you thought, you know, some, they, they thought someone was dead, but he was actually alive, you will find even in our world today, in other parts of our world, it happens where people think someone's dead and they're not. And sometimes in their funeral procession, as they're there, and they're not in a coffin, sometimes just laid out and they're being carried, they wake up. And that would be a horrifying experience to have happen. (laughs) Could you imagine? They were only mostly dead. Verse 17. On his arrival, Jesus found that Lazarus had been in the tomb for four days. At four days, everyone knew this person was dead. Now, Bethany was less than two miles from Jerusalem. Many Jews had come to Martha and Mary to comfort them in the loss of their brother. When Martha heard that Jesus was coming, she went out to meet him, but Mary stayed at home. So Jesus has waited four days. He wants everyone to know that he's dead. Lazarus is dead. You see, Jairus' daughter, uh, 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 she had just passed away. And so people might say, well, he just resuscitated her. He just healed her. She wasn't really dead. He wants everyone to know that this is nothing short of his miraculous power to be able to bring back the dead. He wants everyone to know that, that Lazarus was dead. I take you to Texas to Jose Estrada. He was 48 years old. He was diagnosed with diabetes, and he was asked to lose a few pounds, and so he started running. Took his truck to the running, jogging place, you know, got out of his truck, started to jog. The only thing he had him was his keys. He's jogging, and while he's jogging, another runner dies. The other runners, the group of runners, they get the paramedics there. The paramedics pronounce this man dead. The only thing the other runner has on him is a set of keys. Goes back, and unfortunately, that set of keys happened to open Jose's truck. And so they assume Jose is dead. Well, he's still running. So they call his wife, Helinda, and says, we're so sorry, Jose has died on his run this morning. And she was like, I know, I told him not to run. He was too big. And, um, and um, she goes to the hospital. They ask her to identify his body. His body's, you know, all, you know, there, but it's all covered. And she doesn't really uh, take a good look. And so she says it is him, but it wasn't him. This is just a great story. And um, Jose gets back to his truck. Everybody's gone because they've taken this other guy, you know, to the hospital to try to resuscitate him, but he's dead. And Jose goes to the grocery store, gets a few groceries, goes home, and he's there. And Helinda's boss calls to offer his condolences, and Jose answers the phone. (laughs) Hey! And he's like, you're dead. He's like, pardon? I'm dead. No, I've heard you died. Your wife's gone to the hospital. He said, I wonder where she was because... We were all told you died. He said, died when? On, on your run this morning. He says, I'm pretty good. I got a good run. <laughs> so he goes to the hospital. She's there. The family's gathered. They're grieving and mourning him. And he walks in the room and says, hey, honey, I'm alive. And she faints. And she's out on the ground in the hospital. Now they have to help her. <laughs> you think of the princess bride in Miracle Max. I turn to his philosophy. It just so happens that your friend here is only mostly dead. There is a big difference between mostly dead and all dead. 
mostly dead is slightly alive. (laughs) Jesus wanted everyone to know without hesitation and with no doubt that Lazarus was completely dead, that his body had actually started to decay. He didn't want anyone to mistake this for a resuscitation. He didn't want anyone to mistake this for a healing. He wanted everyone to know that this was a resurrection, that this is what he was able to do. Verse 21, Lord Martha said to Jesus, if you had been there, my brother would not have died. But I know that even now God will give you whatever you ask. Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. Martha answered, I know he will rise again in the resurrection at the last day. You see, like us, the Jewish people believed that God is going to raise us up on the last day, that there will be resurrection. The Jewish people believe that. Martha says it right here. I know that's going to happen. I know that's going to occur. She offers a statement of faith. And she's not accusing Jesus when she says, had you been here, my brother wouldn't have died. It's a statement of belief. It's a statement of faith. She's not understanding what happened, but she knows Jesus was able to do it. She knows he could have healed him. She's not doubting. She knows Jesus has intimacy with the Father. She says it. I know even now God will give you whatever you ask. That's verse 22. She's not doubting. This is a statement of faith. I know God can give you whatever you ask. I know even now God will give you whatever you ask. I know had you been here, my brother wouldn't have died. And she says, I know he'll rise again on the last day. Jesus turns to Martha, verse 25, and says, I am the resurrection and the life. The one who believes in me will live even though they die. And whoever lives by believing in me will never die. Martha, Do you believe this? The term belief. You've heard it a number of times through John already. John 1 verse 12. Yet to all who did receive him, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become the children of God. John 3, 16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whosoever... John 20. Jesus performed many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not recorded in this book. But these are written that you may believe. John says in John 20 why he wrote his gospel. These are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing, you will have life in him. What does Martha say? Jesus says, do you believe this? Verse 26 Verse 27, she says, yes, Lord, I believe that you are the Messiah, the Son of God, who has come into the world. What is belief? Belief is a turning from whatever it is you've trusted in, whatever it is you've hoped in, whatever it is you thought would give you life to Jesus Christ. It's a turning from one thing acknowledging that it could not give you life or fulfillment, and a turning to Jesus, recognizing only he can give you life and fulfillment. That is belief. 
I think of Rick Chang. He started coming to our uh, youth group as a grade 8 going into grade 9 student. He came from a Buddhist home. He'd heard about our ministry and God was at work in his life. When he was in grade 11, God had saved him and he was going to be baptized. He was saved through the work of the ministry of our church and our youth ministry. We've had the privilege now of baptizing five young men and women from Buddhist homes in the last three years. God is a great God. He can save anyone. You know that, right? Because what we've believed is true. Christianity can stand up to any ideology, any philosophy in this world because it is historically true. It is true. It is true. So Rick comes to faith in Christ. He's going to be baptized. The night before he's baptized, his mom sits on the edge of his bed. Dad no longer lived in the home. They were a family living in poverty where she would work 12-hour days on a farm to be able to afford shelter and food for her clothing. So, you know, two hours were driving back and forth on a migrant, you know, farmer worker bus, and then 10 hours were working at the farm back and forth six days a week. That's what she did. That's a lot of work, isn't it? Just gone from the home to make ends meet. She sits on the edge of his bed, and in Vietnamese says, Rick, we're Buddhist, not Christian. I'm not going to stop you from being baptized, but I'm not going to go. And he was the only family member that came to his baptism. You know, there's not many people I've met in life who come to their baptism without any other family members. My nephew and my niece were baptized recently. It's not the church I go to. My parents still go there. My brother's an elder there, right? Our families all went. My sister who doesn't go there went. We went. Grandparents are there. Other cousins are there. Everyone's celebrating. Just families there, you know, en masse to celebrate the baptism of niece and nephew. But Rick came alone except for some friends. And because he had come to faith in Christ, their friends were Buddhist and Muslim and Hindu. And so he's about to be baptized by our youth pastor, Derek, and he looks out on them. He says to his 30 friends or so, he says, I want you to know that I thought my academics would fulfill me. I mean, he graduated from high school with a 98.5 average. He's a smart kid. But he said, I realized that they didn't. They didn't fulfill me. And then he said, I I thought my athleticism would fulfill me, but I broke my arm and realized I'm fragile and even it wouldn't fulfill me. He thinks he's quite good looking. And then he said, I thought all the girls liking me would fulfill me. But he said, I I realized even that wouldn't fulfill me. And then he turned to his friends and he said, I tell you the only one who fulfills, the only one that you can trust, the only one you can believe in is Jesus Christ and him alone. I tell you today to turn to him. He's who you need. Is he not a good God? And then he was baptized that day. And before I was done at James North, his younger brother was baptized because Rick led his younger brother to faith in Christ because God can save anyone. And last Tuesday night, two weeks ago Tuesday night, as I was driving uh, to and from a, a meeting I had, and I had some time on my hands, I called Rick to talk to him and see how he was doing. And he was about to lead the devotional at a basketball night for young adults, where 30 young adults come into our new facility, and they play ball, and they're all Buddhist and Muslim. And that night, he was going to share the testimony of how God had saved him for the first time and lead the devotional. You see, God can save anyone. Martha, do you believe this? But did you hear what Jesus said? This is critical. I am resurrection and life. No one has made a claim like that ever in history. Oh, some people have claimed that they know the way of resurrection or that they know the way of life. 
Oh, some people have claimed that their philosophy is the philosophy you should follow because it is a way. Jesus does not make that claim. Make no mistake about what he says. Jesus does not say he knows the way to life, although he does. Jesus does not say he knows the way to resurrection, although he does. Jesus says, I am resurrection and I am life. When Martha says, I know, I know that one day we will be resurrected. Jesus' response is what? Martha, right now, you're looking at resurrection. Right now, you're looking at life. I am resurrection. I am life. Is he not a great God? Set apart from all others, amen? Amen. No one like him, no one else in human history has ever made claims like that. I am resurrection, Martha. I am life. Did you hear what he said in verse 25? The one who believes in me will live even though they die. And whoever lives by believing in me will never die. Verse 28. After she had said this, what did she say? Well, she said that she did believe. She went back and she called her sister Mary aside. The teacher was here, she said, he's asking for you. When Mary heard this, she got up quickly. She went to him. Now Jesus had not yet entered the village, but was still at the place where Martha had met him. When the Jews who had been with Mary in the house comforting her noticed how quickly she got up and went out, they followed her, supposing she was going to the tomb to mourn there. When Jesus reached the place where, when Mary reached the place where Jesus was and saw him, she fell at his feet and said, Lord, if you'd been here, my brother would not have died. When Jesus saw her weeping, and the Jews who had come along with her were weeping, he was deeply moved in spirit, and he was troubled. Did you see that? Where have you laid them, he said. Come and see, Lord, they replied. And these two words, Jesus wept. Jesus wept. Why did Jesus weep? He knows he's going to raise Lazarus to life again. He's declared it. He knows he's resurrection and life. He said it. Why is he weeping? He's not just caught up in the emotion of all that's going on. I mean, the Jewish people that would have come from Jerusalem would have been professional mourners, some of them that gathered to mourn. It's part of the Jewish culture. His friend has died. Did you hear what the text said earlier? He loved Mary and Martha and Lazarus. He loved them. Have you ever lost someone you love? A spouse? A family member? A child? A friend? And it actually aches to the core of your being? It actually hurts? And everything about that moment feels wrong? Jesus knows he's going to raise him to life again. But he knows the wages of sin is death. 
And I believe as he's weeping, he's mourning, but he's angry, he's enraged. Because death is an enemy. And sin is an enemy. And disease is an enemy. And in that moment, he's enraged, and he knows what he's come to do. He knows he's come to defeat sin and Satan and death. He knows he's the only one who can do it. He's God the Son. He's the second person of the triune God. He cloaked his deity with humanity. He confined himself to a woman's womb, the creator of the universe who called things into existence by his very word. Confined himself to a woman's womb. He was born. He had to be burped and fed and changed. Have you ever thought about that? Next time you hold a newborn, think about that. That's what the God of the universe did for us in the person of Jesus Christ. He lived 33 years. He never sinned. He was righteous in every way. He fulfilled the law in two ways. One, every Old Testament messianic promise was about him and fulfilled in him. Two, he fulfilled the law by being all righteousness because he never sinned. He was qualified to be our Savior because he never sinned. And so he fulfilled all righteousness by never sinning. That's why he could then on the cross take our sin upon himself so he could grant us his righteousness. That's why one day when we stand before God in glory, God the Father will treat us as innocent, though we be guilty. Because when God the Father sees us, he will see his Son. The blood of our Savior, Jesus Christ, will cover us And God treated Christ the way we deserved on the cross so that God can treat us the way Christ deserves in judgment, regardless of your sin. One day, if you have believed in him, one day, if you have trusted in him, when you stand before the Father in judgment, he will treat you as innocent because he will see his Son. Praise his name. But until that day, there will be death. And Jesus weeps because his heart aches. And he knows he's come to defeat sin and Satan and death. You see, when there's death around you, you need to be at peace with God. But you never need to be at peace with death. I sat with a family a week ago Friday whose father and husband was passing away. He had Alzheimer's. They had started a company that I think is worth now $40 million. He's a wonderful man, godly man, loves Jesus deeply. He and his whole family, all his five kids, his wife walking with the Lord. The disease was awful. The last time I went to visit him, he didn't even know who he was. And people in those moments, they don't know what to make of it. And I just said, I read this passage, and then I said, you need to be at peace with God, but you don't need to be at peace with death. You can be angry with death, You can be angry with Alzheimer's. You can be angry with disease. You know what God's going to do with death and disease? One day, he's going to cast them into the lake of burning sulfur. Is that not great news? We will be in a place where there will be no death, where there will be no disease. They are our enemy. Death is an enemy. You need to be at peace with God, but you can be angry with death. One day, God is going to vanquish death. It will be gone. And it will be gone for all of eternity. And it will be one of the great joys of glory that there will be no death or disease. There will be no temptation. 
So the Jews came around, verse 36, and said, See how he loved him. But some of them said, Could not the one who opened the eyes of the blind have not kept this man from dying? Jesus, once more deeply moved, came to the tomb. The idea of deeply moved, he's probably heaving in his emotion. He's probably weeping with them. The idea of deeply moved is he's troubled in spirit. It was a cave with a stone laid across the entrance. Take away the stone, Jesus said. But Lord, Martha said, by this time there's a bad order. He's been there four days. Jesus said, did I not tell you that if you believed you would see the glory of God? At my grandfather's funeral, John Mahaffey took the committal. I took the funeral. And I'll never forget these words. He's a good friend, and, and he's here next week. And John Mahaffey at the committal said this, We think we're in the land of the living, going to the land of the dying. But it's not true. We are in the land of the dying. And we are going to the land of the living. Amen? Is that not good news? Because Jesus has defeated sin and Satan and death. Tim Keller says this, You don't really know Jesus is all you need until Jesus is all you have. So they took away the stone. Then Jesus looked up and said, Father, I thank you that you've heard me. I thank you that you always hear me. But I said this for the benefit of the people standing here, that they may believe. You see that word again? That you sent me. When he said this, Jesus called out in a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. And the dead man came out. His hands and his feet were wrapped with strips of linen and a cloth around his face. And Jesus said, take the grave clothes off and let him go. You see, Jesus can raise the dead as easily as we can raise someone back to awakeness when they're asleep. It's just as easy for Jesus to raise a dead person as it is for us to raise or wake up a sleeping person. That's the power of our God. Now you think of Lazarus. I don't know where he was those four days. Don't ask me after. I have no clue. I really don't. I don't know where he was, right? Was he in paradise? Is he the only one that experienced soul sleep? I mean, it'd be pretty rough, eh? Like you're in paradise because Jesus says that to the thief on the cross. Today you'll be with me in paradise. And all of a sudden you, you feel this tug, like what's going on here, right? And whoop, bat your back in your body. You're like, what? Right? <laughs> But Lazarus was raised to life to die again. Right? Lazarus is going to die again. That's another, what? What's, yeah, really? I got to go through that one more time. Right? But that's not true of Jesus. He's going to die on the cross. He's going to be buried in a tomb. The Father's going to raise him to life again. To never die again. He is the first fruits of the resurrection. Is that not great news? He is alive now and forevermore in a resurrected body. That is our God. For who? For anyone who believes. I think of Tune. He's one of the Karen young men. When his friend Sokle committed suicide, Tune spiraled. He gave up his faith. He was addicted to drugs. He became a drug dealer. And his family kicked him out of their apartment. I mean, seven of them living in a two-bedroom apartment. They said, you can't live here. His grandfather took him in while he was between couches and places selling drugs. His grandfather brought him in. And as they brought Tune in, his grandfather, his grandfather couldn't read or write his own language, the Karen language. 
He lived his whole life until he was in his 60s in a jungle and a refugee camp. He had no education. He couldn't read or write his own language, let alone English. But he was a godly man who loved Jesus deeply. He couldn't form any type of apologetic. He'd never read anything by R.C. Sproul or Tim Keller. But he lived out the life of Jesus in front of his grandson faithfully. The only Bible he knew was the Bible he had memorized. Well, on the day of his funeral, Tune was sitting there as his grandfather was being celebrated, his life and the life of our Savior Jesus. You see, our hope one day isn't in the fact that we'll see our loved ones. If that's your hope, your hope is misplaced. Our hope is in Jesus Christ. It's because of him that we'll see our loved ones. Our loved ones have no power for us to see them. Jesus does. Our hope is in him. And Tune says, he told me as he shared his testimonies, he sat there listening to people celebrating his grandfather's godly life. All he could think of was how kind and gentle he was in all the mess that he brought into his grandfather's home. His grandfather only loved on him. His grandfather only pointed him to Jesus. And he said, as I sat there thinking of verses that my grandfather would quote to me, being unable to read, I bowed my head there in that chair and gave my life to Jesus Christ. He went home. He took his phone and he destroyed it so that no one that he had contact with could contact him again. He took all the drugs and he flushed them down the toilet and he went to his younger brother, Sam, and said, Samson, Samson, I know that you've been walking with the Lord. The Lord has saved you. Samson had just been baptized. Would you show me how to follow him? And now Tune has become this force for God at work and in life, sharing the gospel with other people. God can save anyone. Anyone who what? Who believes. Anyone who turns to him. Anyone who says, I need you. Quickly and I'm done. You see the images of light and dark. The great I am. And believe in Jesus. You see, the resurrection of Jesus is completely different. I close with these thoughts. Why do I believe Jesus rose to life again? Firstly, no one expected it. No one expected it. The disciples were hiding in a room. The last thing they expected is he was going to be alive. Two, the women were key witnesses. You know, you'd never use women as key witnesses in those days. Their testimony was inadmissible in court. If you're going to make up a book, you're not going to make the women the key witnesses. You'd never do that back then. But God told the story as it happened because he's God. And he's going to tell the truth. Three, a body couldn't be produced. All they had to do at the day of Pentecost in the way that Jesus' body would have been wrapped. It would have been decaying, but on the day of Pentecost, when 3,000 people were baptized, if the Romans had the body, they just had to show it and say, hey, he's not alive, he's dead. See, you're believing in something false. But they couldn't produce a body because the body had been resurrected again. Four, a great following ensued. Thousands were saved. Jesus appeared to 500 at one time, and thousands came to the point of believing in him in that day. That's why in the Gospels, they named people who were there. They named people who saw him, both in the book of Acts and in the Gospels, so that you, if you were there back then, 2,000 years ago, could go to that person and say, did you really see him? Did you really talk to him? Was he really alive? Five, these disciples were willing to die for the cause. They were willing to die for the cause of Jesus Christ because they didn't make up some lie. They didn't you know, weren't together for some group hallucination. How ridiculous the theory is that. Sorry. 
they had encountered the risen Lord so much so that when people said, we're going to take your life, they said, take it. To live is Christ. To die is, is gain. And lastly, history is unexplainable without the resurrection. If you study world religions, you study Baha'ism, you study Confucianism, you study the Muslim faith, you study Hinduism, every world religion stays within the origin of its center place, right? It's it's the center of its origin. That's where it stays, except for migration patterns. So you track world religions around the world, and that's where they all stay, except one religion. Only one religion doesn't do that. One religion that started in the Middle East and then began to make its way across Europe and into Asia. One religion that then made its way into North America. But today, if you study it, Christianity, God's faith, the faith of the living God, the one who is alive, who is life and resurrection. There are people that he's saving all around the world, millions and tens of millions and hundreds of millions of people in places like Asia and Africa and South America, as far away as you can get from its place of origin. Why? Because our God is life. Our God is resurrection. He is Jesus Christ, and he is not dead. He is alive. For anyone who believes on his name, they will not die. They will enter into his presence. He is our God. Will you pray with me? We thank you, Lord Jesus Christ, that you indeed are resurrection and life. And we thank you that you not only came to defeat sin and death and Satan, you did it. You were the sinless one. You are the resurrected one. And God, today I pray for anyone who hasn't turned to you yet, anyone who's online, anyone who's here in this room, anyone who's listening at another site who has not yet trusted you, God, may today be the day where your spirit has moved in them so powerfully that they would turn from whatever they have believed in to trust you, Lord Jesus Christ. And for those of us that know you, Lord, so many of us here know you. So many of us online know you. Lord Jesus Christ, may you encourage us with these words. You are life. You are resurrection. You are Jesus. And so we pray this in the powerful name of Jesus Christ the Lord. And God's people said...